My audio is working, so please do me a favor right off the bat and tell me if you can hear me. Looks like I might be coming through my iPhone microphone. So welcome to the future where uh, your iPhone just jumps in to help out. Uh, I see Jen is typing, so we're going to go ahead and see if you can hear me. Switching back over to this main mic looks like we are good. Okay, so welcome to this real live, unedited live stream of Rounding the News, your weekly news roundup brought to you by Rounding the Earth. Hosted by me, Liam Sturgis. That's better, though. Ahoy, mateys. So let's get right into it, ladies and gentlemen. Today's live stream, today's episode is called Deer in the Headlights. And that's because uh, I can't think of a better way to describe the face that this uh, soon-to-be former Biden administration official tends to bear. Um, but before we get started, just a reminder that this show uh, carries on because of your generous support. You can Keep the show going financially, either on Rumble or Rockfin or Odyssey. A reminder that on Rumble, uh, there are these really cool things called Rumble Rants. They're basically like paid comments, and um, you can get us 100% of that money for the remainder of 2023. And uh, in 2024, the cut that Rumble takes will go to a fairly reasonable, I think, 20%. Uh, in any case... Um, Rockfin and Odyssey are also fantastic platforms that have their own tipping functions, but the best way to support us is by joining us at our Rounding the Earth Locals community at roundingtheearth.locals.com. You can sign up for free to stay in the loop with everything we are doing, or you can join, join in on our weekly supporters exclusive live streams, such as the one from this past week, where Matthew brought us into the world of thinking about what, what happened to the the, the Nazi menace really, did it go away or can it be traced throughout more recent history? I think a lot of people listening will understand that there is more to that story than most might feel comfortable uh, acknowledging. But continuation of the Nazi menace, go uh, become a paid supporter at roundingtheearth.locals.com to access that. But enough of the plugs, ladies and gentlemen, let's jump right in. We're going to do a couple of rapid fire news stories. Did you know that Elon Musk had stepped down as CEO of Twitter? I vaguely remember some poll where he said, if people agree that I should step down, I will. But that was a while ago. In any case, from Zero Hedge, its official top NBC Universal ad exec and World Economic Forum Task Force chair is Twitter's new CEO. It's official moments ago, NBC confirmed that its head of advertising is leaving the company. Musk has finally tweeted to confirm her position, noting that Yetarino will focus primarily on business operations, while he will focus on product design and new technology. And as Musk says in this tweet, looking forward to working with Linda to transform this platform into X, the everything app. Very interesting. And moving on to uh, another uh, uh, current event uh, that many people are talking about. Migrants rush across U.S. border to uh, a border in final hours before Title 42 expires. 
I read this from the Globe and Mail. Migrants rushed across the Mexico border Thursday, racing to enter the United States before pandemic-related asylum restrictions are lifted in a shift that threatens to put a historic strain on the nation's beleaguered immigration system. The imminent end of the rules known as Title 42 stirred fear among migrants that changes would make it more difficult for them to stay in the U.S. And the Biden administration was dealt a potentially serious legal setback when a federal judge temporarily blocked its attempt to more quickly release migrants when border patrol holding stations are full. Uh, yeah, so um, this is uh, related to um, the invocation of a pre-existing law, but during the Trump administration, uh, under the guise of pandemic measures to make it, I, I, I don't know, it's, it's related to immigration. Everyone's freaking out. I'm not totally sure if this has actually resulted in a huge uh, strain on the system beyond what has already been there for a while, but I'll be interested in seeing what others are talking about on this topic today. Okay, now moving on to our main story, because speaking of pandemic measures, this is the face of Dr. Rochelle Walensky, who has announced her resignation as director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the United States. Her official reason cited was the nation's progress in coping with COVID-19. The announcement also happened to coincide with the World Health Organization's declaration that the global health emergency related to COVID-19 has ended, which we mentioned last week. Now, Walensky was nominated to the directorship by President-elect Joe Biden on December 7th, 2020, while she was employed at Harvard Medical School, Massachusetts General Hospital, and Brigham and Women's Hospital. She had replaced the outgoing Robert Redfield, who served in the administration of President Donald Trump. Dr. Anthony Fauci got to stick around, but not Dr. Redfield. Now, as noted by NPR... Walensky's career in medicine started during the height of the HIV-AIDS crisis. From 2014 to 2015, she served as chair of the Office of AIDS Research Advisory Council, a team within the NIH tasked with advising high-level officials on the planning, coordination, and evaluation of research and other HIV-AIDS activities conducted or supported by the National Institutes of Health, including the Director of the Office of AIDS Research, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, the Assistant Secretary for Health, and the Director of the NIH. Now, Walensky's profile on the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health's Prevention Policy Modeling Lab website describes her as being internationally recognized for motivating U.S. policy toward the promotion of routine HIV screening and for her work on effective and efficient strategies of HIV care in South Africa. She's a member of the American Society for Clinical Investigation and the Association of American Physicians, not to be confused with the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons, uh, <laughs> and has also served as a member of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Panel on Antiretroviral Guidelines for Adults and Adolescents. Prior to taking office in the Biden administration in 2021, Walensky had already been actively engaged on the question of the COVID-19 pandemic. She was among the first signatories of the Jon Snow Memorandum, published in The Lancet and a few other places simultaneously in October 2020. The memo asserted that 
the infection fatality rate of COVID-19 is several fold higher than that of seasonal influenza and and infection can lead to persisting illness, including in young, previously healthy people. That's what they stated based on the false premise that pre-existing immunity to the novel virus did not exist within the population. It called for clear communication about the risks posed by COVID-19 and effective strategies to combat them, such as physical distancing, face coverings, and continuing restrictions, which must be supported by financial and social programs. Now, the memo is worth reading, as it comes across very much like a one-for-one counter to the Great Barrington Declaration, which was published the very same month. In fact, that seems to have been exactly the point. As per the Great Barrington Declaration's Wikipedia page, they call it the counter-memorandum. There are thousands of signatories on this thing now. We have a page on the Campfire Wiki with so many thousands of names, there is no way we could possibly link up, you know, it's very poorly formatted at the moment. It was a big copy paste. There are so many names on the list, but there was an initial set of signatories, probably 30, maybe 20 other signatories. In addition to Walensky from that initial crew include the infamous David Fisman, who argued it was dangerous for the vaccinated to mix with the unvaccinated. Also, Isabel Eckerly, don't know if I pronounced that right, a collaborator of the more infamous Christian Drosden, who was responsible for pushing through a proprietary PCR assay that set the standard for PCR testing for SARS-CoV-2 around the world, but it turns out his paper was fraudulent and he had a conflict of interest and oh dear, oh dear. Um, also, Angela Rasmussen, who piled on doctors spreading misinformation co-authored in that article with the equally pleasant Timothy Caulfield, while also working at Vito Intervac, an institution at the University of Saskatchewan, developing their own COVID-19 vaccine and possibly even manufacturing other companies' COVID-19 vaccines. Well, now back to Walensky. On November 19th, 2020, the journal Health Affairs published a study led by Walensky with a rather odd premise. Now, if you go to look, you'll find this piece is now hidden behind a paywall, which is sort of odd for COVID-19 research. They tend to have this open science framework that they apply. And by they, I mean everybody. Uh, You tend to not have to pay for them. But anyway, an archive version remains available. Titled Clinical Outcomes of a COVID-19 Vaccine Implementation Over Efficacy. The study argues that factors related to implementation will contribute more to the success of vaccination programs than a vaccine's efficacy as determined in clinical trials. Now, I thought, that's funny. She must have seen the data coming out of the Pfizer-BioNTech clinical trial (laughs) because that would be a fairly reasonable conclusion to come to. You know, maybe we should not focus so much on what the clinical trials are saying. And I would direct everybody, if you haven't yet seen or haven't been following the wonderful work of Open Vate or Pierre and Josh Getzko, uh, I highly recommend you go check them out because they're doing fantastic work laying out the uh, how do they put it mathematical proofs of fraud uh, for 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 at least the Pfizer BioNTech trial. But specifically, though, within this study, Walensky and her team warn 
that things like manufacturing or deployment delays, significant vaccine hesitancy, or greater epidemic severity would all make the COVID-19 vaccines work less well, and that therefore health officials should invest greater financial resources and attention to vaccine production and distribution programs to redouble efforts to promote public confidence in COVID-19 vaccines, and to encourage continued adherence to other mitigation approaches even after a vaccine becomes available. In other words, Walensky set the stage for the inevitable COVID-19 vaccine failures to be blamed on any combination of the following unrelated things. One, a rollout that is deemed to be too slow. Two, any arbitrary number of people who decline to take the shot for any reason whatsoever. Three, any increase in illness or perceived increase in illness that can be blamed on COVID-19. Four, not enough money. And five, people not continuing to do non-vaccine things like locking down, wearing face coverings, working from home, etc. You know, all of the things that people were promised they'd be able to stop doing once they got vaccinated. Thus, it shouldn't be surprising that Walensky then led the charge in declaring the pandemic of the unvaccinated less than one year later. I was surprised to see this was in July 2021 that this was the attitude taken, or July 2022, I can't remember. 2021 was the dark year, if I recall correctly. Now, a comment in, 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 in a comment on the study from someone named Paul G sums up quite well why Walensky's approach has always been completely backwards. I'll read it for you. This article is a nice theoretical discussion uh, that relies on models, but it is woefully short on real-world applicability or substance. Instead of trying to persuade or trick people into believing the vaccines will work, try developing and publishing actual lab-based and real-world evidence that shows that they work and what that will mean. Massive PR campaigns to promote vaccine acceptance and government threats to force people to get vaccinated will likely promote a tremendous backlash if the vaccines don't work. In other words, don't lie to people and don't try to con them into accepting vaccines. Produce something that actually does work and that is shown to be effective and people will line up to get their shots. The irony, of course, is in the reply from Eric, who offers, as rebuttal, links to the Phase 3 clinical trial interim reports from the aforementioned Pfizer-BioNTech and AstraZeneca. The exact trials that Walensky argues are essentially irrelevant. In the acknowledgments, Walensky discloses funding from the National Institutes of Health, Massachusetts General Hospital, where, of course, she was employed at this time, and CNN, of all things. So now all of that took place before she was hired 
uh, to the Biden administration to lead the Center of Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, which, of course, was one of the most important uh, public health institutions making decisions about uh, everything from vaccines, as we've seen, to uh, face coverings and eviction moratoriums and basically anything that they could um, attempt to sway policy over. Um, but then she did become that, okay? And then we get to the question of conflicts of interest, which is my bread and butter. By the way, this wasn't supposed to be my main story this week. I just, once I, once I started, I, I hate to use the term rabbit hole, but once I got started down the rabbit hole, I couldn't stop. Beyond the well-covered inconsistencies in Walensky's statements regarding COVID-19 and associated vaccine products. Walensky has faced criticism for perceived or possible conflicts of interest. Her husband is Lauren Walensky, a renowned pediatric oncology researcher at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute at Harvard University. And I want to give credit to Matthew Crawford here because I stumbled on this particular factoid and this line of information on the Campfire Wiki when I was looking for any information that we already had on Rochelle Walensky. But I saw that Matthew had added something in, which was this Red State article. So thank you, Matthew. This is why the Campfire Wiki is so vital. So as detailed in an article published by Red State in August 2021, Lauren Walensky co-founded a biotechnology company called Litica Therapeutics on October in October 2019, which swiftly received a $16.9 million grant from the United States Department of Health and Human Services, the government agency that now employs Rochelle. And in fact, she was already working uh, on a number of their task forces. You could say she was already employed with them. The grant was issued February 18th, 2020 right before a pretty crazy time. Now, the specific funding program in question, CARB-X, which stands for Combating Antibiotic-Resistant Bacteria Biopharmaceutical Accelerator, CARB-X is funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, or BARDA, the German Federal Ministry of Education and Research, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, NIAID, which was until recently led by Dr. Anthony Fauci, the United Kingdom Department of Health and Social Care through the Global Antimicrobial Resistance Innovation Fund, or GAMRIF, <laughs> and the Wellcome Trust, a who's who of global health entities. Now, CARB-X is a global nonprofit partnership accelerating antibacterial products to address drug-resistant bacteria. And the grant that it awarded to Lytica, I'll bring it back up now, is intended to, I quote, develop antibacterial peptides with broad activity against multi-drug resistant bacteria. With this in mind, consider the role that bacterial pneumonia seems to have played in a significant portion of COVID-19 related fatalities, as recently highlighted just a week ago by Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine, 
the headline I have on the screen, secondary bacterial pneumonia drove many COVID-19 deaths. Machine learning finds no evidence of cytokine storm in critically ill patients with COVID-19. Now, of course, this is not new information. The fact that it's being covered in this way perhaps is new. And it's very important that people understand, uh, I think, the facts here. Now, it's not new to most people who are paying attention. In their October 2021 paper titled Nature of the COVID-Era Public Health Disaster in the USA from All-Cause Mortality and Socio-Geoeconomic and Climatic Data, researchers Denis Rancourt, Marine Baudin, and Jérémy Mercier identified efforts across the world, really, to limit the use of antibiotics in patients diagnosed or suspected of having COVID-19. They find antibiotic prescriptions dropped significantly in April 2020 and remained low, allowing for secondary bacterial pneumonia to overtake patients who otherwise would have likely recovered. I have on the screen right here just a, a selection of graphs showing the prescription patterns. It looks as though this represents the same sort of waves you could overlay it with uh, the flu season, the cold and flu season every year. And that's probably when these tend to be prescribed the most. Um, and you can see a tremendous drop in there are six different um, antibiotics on the screen, antibiotic products, and all of them dropped. Very interesting. Uh, now, Rancourt and colleagues also note that uh, the suppression of the use of specifically ivermectin likely also contributed, given its broad antiviral and antibacterial properties. And they cite past research on its use against tuberculosis as an example, something that one Mark Kulag of Housatonic Live might find relevant given his stream yesterday. Now, if Walensky's Lytica Therapeutics is tasked with developing new antibiotic products to treat lung infections like pneumonia, it stands to reason that the use of the many existing antibiotics and ivermectin and likely other yet to be identified or as of yet not widely discussed repurposed drugs, the use of those would stand in the way of Lytica Therapeutics fulfilling their CARB-X grant obligations. Hence, conflict of interest. Then there's the fun fact that in May of 2022, Lytica was accepted into the Blue Knight program, funded by Johnson & Johnson and BARDA. Now, we mentioned BARDA before, but know that BARDA sits within, in rather alongside Walensky's CDC within the United States Department of Health and Human Services. Johnson & Johnson, of course, developed an adenoviral vector COVID-19 vaccine under its Janssen subsidiary, which received hundreds of millions of dollars in United States government funding through Operation Warp Speed to develop their product. 
Interestingly, the page on Lydica's website that formally detailed Walensky's role as scientific co-founder is no longer available, except by Wayback Machine, of course. But he does still appear on the front page under the leadership heading, not far above the scientific advisory board section that includes a former Janssen vice president named Marco Gotardis. But Lydica is not Lauren Walensky's first rodeo. He also serves as a member of the scientific advisory board and consultant for Aileron Therapeutics, a biopharmaceutical company developing treatments against side effects caused by cancer chemotherapy. Aileron's investors are a who's who of pharmaceutical industry giants, including Eli Lilly, Novartis, Roche, and SR1, which is GlaxoSmithKline's venture capital firm, which recently, I think, spun off into its own thing. Now, the first paper published on the news section of Lydica's website, titled Design of Stapled Antimicrobial Peptides That Are Stable, Non-Toxic, and Kill Antibiotic-Resistant Bacteria in Mice, this study discloses a partnership between Aileron and Walensky's employer, the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. So just to confirm, the paper on the new company that started in 2019, or the on the website of the new company, the, 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 the study discussing the core product or the core technology underlying that new company, within that first paper, there's an acknowledgement that basically it's come out of a partnership, at least somewhat, between the older company, Aileron, and Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Okay, now, incidentally, the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and I tried to put all the logos on here, but there were too many. So I'm just going to read. I'm going to read out the logos that would be fun to see all together. But Dana-Farber Cancer Institute has itself been funded by a, a large number of relevant organizations, such as Abbott, Amgen, AstraZeneca, Bayer, BD, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Biogen, BlackRock, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Eli Lilly, GlaxoSmithKline, Johnson & Johnson, Merck, Novartis, Pfizer, and Takeda, all of whom profited greatly from diagnostics, experimental treatments, and novel vaccine candidates for COVID-19. But additional donors of note are Donald and Melania Trump the Trump Foundation, the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, whose, by the way, board of directors includes Anthony Fauci and the former FDA commissioner slash current Gavi director, Margaret Hamburg, as well as the International Monetary Fund, literally the IMF, one of the most powerful financial institutions in the world. But not to be forgotten, the Steve and Michelle Kirsch Foundation, and Open Society Foundations, and the World Health Organization. Now, uh, Lauren Walensky's lab at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute acknowledges further research funding from the National Cancer Institute and the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Again, incidentally, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society received at least two grants from Pfizer in 2021. I'm sure there's even more. I just happen to have that information handy. So, according to NPR, employees at the CDC were actually unaware of the news of Walensky's departure until they themselves heard the announcement on the news. 
She is set to remain in office until June 30th of this year. And as of today, no replacement has been named. So I found it interesting that her departure was announced so suddenly that people didn't appear to know about it. And I, I, I remarked to Sam, my partner yesterday, that, you know, because she thought, you know, it seems odd that her employees wouldn't know about it. And I said, well, I kind of think she probably didn't know about it. You start to wonder if part of the reason why someone like Dr. Walensky always looks like a deer in the headlights, like she's not totally sure what's going on, may be because she herself is often being told, perhaps at the last minute, perhaps being guided by her daily agenda. You know, there's a sense that people don't always sound prepared. They don't always know what they're talking about in positions like this when they're speaking on television. And it may be because your life, when you take a position like this, ceases being your own. Your days, your time, your schedule, they're not put together by you. You have an entire agency. You have multiple agencies in the United States government, one of the largest bureaucracies in the world, putting together what you're going to do each day, what you're going to say, what your positions on various issues of scientific matters are going to be. And it's entirely possible that in the grand scheme of things, on the chessboard of whatever we're doing here, the plandemonium, as Matthew would 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 coin it. Perhaps Walensky is being moved. Perhaps this won't be a, you know, sit down and shut up and we'll never hear from you again. Maybe it'll be a promotion to something like NIAID or something in whatever the next administration will be, or most likely back into industry. My point, I suppose, is it looks like this family connection never left industry. And uh, it seems as though this Walensky family, at least Rochelle, having grown up in the era of the Fauci HIV um, empire, uh, was always an influential player, never quite independent enough, maybe, to wield such a position of public authority. But in any case, I hope this has been educational. A reminder to join us over at roundingtheearth.locals.com, where I will be posting the show notes for today's episode uh, within probably about 20 minutes of today's episode finishing up. And uh, please remember, the best way to support the show and to make sure we can keep doing this and uh, and take on uh, more exciting projects is to become a paid supporter, which you can do for as little as $5 a month. You can do one-time uh, supports uh, or do a uh, recurring or even an annual subscription. But of course, you can also join for free and participate in the live chats as have been pointing uh, as has been going on uh, throughout this entire episode. And um, yeah, this has been great. Roundingtheearth.substack.com is the original, the OG Rounding the Earth series. You can still go there and find fantastic work being done by Matthew. Uh, not every day, but pretty darn close to it. And finally, liamsturgis.com is where you can find me and um, check out my music. Uh, uh, and uh, I cannot wait to see you guys again. Uh, in the next couple of days. I hope you have a fantastic weekend. This has been Rounding the News. We will see you again shortly.